There is a science fiction novel uh, by the Chinese novelist Kaixian Liu, Liu called The Three Body Problem. In this book, an alien civilization has discovered Earth. The civilization is able to disrupt things on Earth from a great distance because of its superior understanding of physics. So its first task is to disrupt the world's population from advancing in physics and chemistry, effectively neutralizing our ability to technologically advance to challenge them and the threat they pose. The alien planet is constitutionally less stable than the Earth, and thus it is a less uh, desirable place to sustain life. The alien civilization sets out to take over the Earth. But the only thing is, the alien civilization is 450 years away from reaching us. Thus, the inhabitants of Earth are forced to make a decision. Do we attempt to pour all of our resources into trying to overcome this technological shield placed by the aliens? Do we try to do something more clever and try to outwit them? Or do we just leave it for the next generation to figure out? Obviously, 450 years is a long time. 450 years ago, the French were fighting in the wars of religion between the Catholics and the Protestants. 450 years ago, Pennsylvania was not even a concept. 450 years ago, the internal combustion system was 300 years away from existence. Now this is, or maybe was, seemingly a good metaphor for the climate apocalypse facing the world. It's a huge problem, it's a complex problem, and its consequences seemed rather distant and almost hard to believe. Now, I remember when I first heard about the climate apocalypse, um, it, the 2006 film, An Inconvenient Truth. Now, see, I grew up in rural Colorado, so I was fairly familiar with people talking about the end of the world. There were those who were stockpiling guns and goods in preparation for the pending collapse of civilization. There were also those who were Christian apocalypticists, holding their breath that it was the second coming and that God's anger would rain down upon their enemies. I was used to portrayals of the end of the world in popular media. And so it was in this context that I viewed this film. Sure, it was strange to hear someone talking about the danger not from the point of view of a religion in which I did not believe, whether that religion be guns and individualism or Christian salvation, and it was strange to hear science and rationalism backing up the claims. But the movie failed to, and I know I'm not alone in this judging by the actions of folks since, the movie failed to move me toward meaningful action. And I think there were many reasons for this, but today I want to focus on one of those, and it is one that I think is most vital. And it's a complicated topic, but I want to focus in on the roots of our spiritual lives. And I will say, Regardless of our cosmology or our theology, I believe we all have spiritual lives insofar as we <clears throat> think of these lives as the underlying beliefs 
and experiences that we have and that inform our decisions. So I want to talk broadly about two approaches in our spiritual lives to history, the future, and civilization. The first I will call the providential view, or a providential world. This is an underlying belief that the world is fundamentally human-centered, that the world cares about our well-being, and in some iterations that ultimately we will be saved or reunited with God or being or love. In the providential view, everything is ultimately as it should be. Now, the second worldview that I wish to speak of is, um, and I'm following the theologian William Connolly, it's what I will call tragic vision. Tragic vision places us in a precarious world, a world which is not centered on humans, a world that is not inherently good, a world that does not necessarily lead to salvation or wholeness. Tragic vision rejects human-centeredness, and it rejects providence. It is tragic in that way of Greek tragedy. You know, the gods are in their own fight, and we are here fending for ourselves. And I bring the, these two visions of the world up in this conversation because when we talk about the end of the world, and that is fundamentally what we're talking about when we talk about the climate crisis, when we talk about the end of the world, we are ultimately talking about our fundamental beliefs, about meaning, about meaning making, and our role in it all. Now, the word apocalypse is Greek, and it doesn't mean calamity, but rather a revealing or an unveiling. Thus, the book of the Christian Bible, the Apocalypse of John, is often rightly translated into Revelation. Now, that book, which gets a lot of airtime in modern imperial Christianity, that book describes the end of the Roman Empire. It describes not the end of our world, but the end of John's world. The end of the world, the end of the world as we know it, it reveals, it uncovers, it exposes the fractures of the world that is ending. So in Revelation, it primarily reveals the oppressive and monstrous nature of the Roman Empire. The climate apocalypse is the revelation of our time. How we view it, how we see it, what it reveals to us is the fractures and fragility that have existed for so long in our world. The climate apocalypse and its revelations tell us what is ultimately meaningful to us and what matters to us. And I emphasize this point because as you use, we don't have baked into our faith the end of the world. Some forms of Christianity center their entire religion on the end of it all, on the second coming of Christ. Often talk of the end is tainted with the priorities of a certain type of Christianity and its vision of justice by the people hoping for the end of the world where their creed will be proven right. But they do not own the end of the world. We too must take theological ownership. So what does it mean 
to us as you use that this may very well be the end of the world as we know it. That 450 years of waiting for the aliens has shrunk for us and Perhaps we have 10 or 20 or 30 before the climate apocalypse really opens its maw. And we're already experiencing some of it. Often when we feel this, we are preoccupied with this question of how do we stop it? How can we stop the climate apocalypse? Now that's an important question to ask, but we have to ask ourselves at this point, prepare ourselves seriously that regardless what we do, whether we stop the worst of climate change, reverse it, or whether we succumb to the point of no return, no matter what, this is the end of the world as we know it. Things that would be required of us are so great that even if we win this fight against climate change, this world, with all of our expectations for a particular future, is over. So how do we meet this moment, what I have heard called the razor's edge of time? How do we meet this moment spiritually? The tools of providence and progress are not fit for this moment in time. The end of the world tells us, the end of the world that tells us that the divine is coming down and gathering up the best believers is one that not only rings hollow, but is one that is fundamentally about resentment. It is exactly what our universalist forebears fought against. Selective salvation is just an extension of unequal justice of today enacted at a cosmic level. Universalism's belief in universal in universal salvation means that salvation is not a means to met out justice. That is left to humans. So too, the belief that human history is one of progress towards greater justice and greater accomplishment ignores the very precarity of the world in which we live. We have all had the same few years of the Supreme Court. We have all had the same six years. We have all mourned the sixth great extinction. Cosmologies that approach the apocalypse with their eyes closed will be swallowed up in it. Resentment and despair threaten to surround us when we stare into this particular abyss. So how do we build a theology that does not sink into resentment and despair, a cosmology that calls us to embrace our neighbors fight the influence of empire and love more completely. Now, there's a quote from the Jewish theologian Elie Weissel that I keep coming back to. Now, if you don't know, Weissel was a Jewish theologian who lived through the Holocaust. And in this quote, he is reading the book of Job. And I will just remind us, for those of us who don't remember, in Job, God makes a wager with another supernatural entity that Job will remain faithful even if all of the providential things God has provided him are stripped away. So his family is killed, his property destroyed, his body infected and covered in maggots. Job cries out to God, why is this happening? And God appears in a tornado and essentially chastises Job and then goes through a litany of all of God's accomplishments. 
It is a notoriously bad response to the question of why evil exists. But Weissel, reading Job in the light of the apocalypse of the Holocaust, says, Job did not suffer in vain. Thanks to Job, we know that it is given to humans to transform divine injustice to human justice and compassion. Now this is tragic vision. It is an impatient vision. It is a prophetic vision. It is the vision of the oppressed. Tragic vision tells us that there is nothing at all that guarantees that justice will be the final result. Nothing at all that guarantees that humanity will be saved. Nothing at all that keeps evil away. Except us, except our actions, except our steadfast commitment to justice, to love, to grief. It is given to us to transform divine injustice or indifference to human justice and compassion. The providential world tells us that technology will save us, that history has been leading up to this moment of climate apocalypse, but so too has our cleverness extended beyond any problem. Providential world tells us that God is driving this car. But the tragic worldview tells us that we are living on the razor's edge of time and there's nothing guaranteed to save us. And so many of our oppressed siblings know tragic vision. It's the vision that says that we cannot wait for history to slowly lead us to the promised land. Our trans siblings are being stabbed to death by their own hands and by others. Our black siblings have been lynched for hundreds of years. The climate apocalypse reveals the thousands of apocalypses that have been happening every day. The immigrants traveling to our shores because their earth can no longer churn forth its nutrients. This is the apocalypse that is waiting for the world. The visions of the collapse of civilization simply expands that enterprise that has been crushing so many. The vision of human extinction is the reality of so many creatures on our planet today, from the apocalypse of the slaughterhouse where animals are bred in miserable conditions only to die, to the indigenous bird, the last of its species calling out for love at the end of time. Tragic vision is the vision of the oppressed, the revelation of the reviled, who at once reminds us that we are not much different from the people riding in the backs of trucks to our desert, not that far away from that condition ourselves, and that there is only us, me, you, those around us, who can call for any type of justice. We don't have the luxury to wait for divine intervention. So what does that mean for us you use? Well, I believe that we do two things best, grief, and justice work. So what do I mean by this? Well, a UU memorial service is powerful. Our memorial services are not a motor to evangelize, nor are they a motor to perpetuate a providential view of the world that assures everyone that that person is in God's loving hands now. Our memorial services do not rush from wound to healing. Our memorial services focus on the individual 
they reflect upon the meaning of their lives, and we reflect upon the entire person in their beauty and in their struggles. The whole person, not what we want them to be, but who they were. If you have ever been to a UU memorial service, you know what I mean. And at the end of the world as we know it, this practice of grief is vital. We have lost so much, and we are going to lose so much more in the coming years. And grief ungrieved feeds resentment. So we must grieve. We must grieve the loss of our animal kin. We must grieve the loss of nations, of strangers, of our dreams, and of each other. Practicing grieving is the work of justice at the end of the world. So too are our eight principles. I believe that at their core, they are founded upon a tragic vision. Our dedication to clearly articulated principles, not to an ancient book, not to a way of believing, not to a creed. The principles are guiding lights that help us keep the course and embrace community. And these principles open us up to intersectional collaboration with many non-religious and religious groups. We can't do this work alone. Preserving our democratic structures, holding up the fundamental work of humanity in search for truth and meaning, dismantling white supremacy and fighting the logic of genocide by recognizing our interconnection and our worth and dignity. These are the fundamental values of humanity striving to turn divine injustice into human justice and compassion. Our principles not only hold in the face of the end of the world as we know it, they stand to hold the world up. The reading today, uh, the one from the Tao Te Ching, is the closest thing that the Tao gets to describing a paradise. And Ursula K. Le Guin, the um, translator, comments on this chapter that Lao Tzu seems to be saying, enjoy your life. Live in your body. You are your body. Where else is there to go? Heaven and earth are one. As you walk the streets of your town, you walk on the way of heaven. If we are not banking on that divine kingdom to solve all of our problems at the end of the world, if our towns, our cities, our earth are the only places we can go, then let us see their divinity. Let us make their divinity. It is said that Martin Luther, the Protestant theologian, was planting an apple tree one day when one of his students asked him what he would be doing if it was the end of the world. And Luther is said to have responded, even if the world were to end tomorrow, I would be planting my apple tree. May we see our streets as the way of heaven and our principles as our apple tree, worth planting in and of themselves. Maybe so. Amen. Hi, and welcome to Getting the Message, uh, a segment of our podcast where we dive a little bit deeper into the themes of the reflection and of the service on any given week. I am Ember Kelly. I use she and her pronouns, and I'm the Director of Religious Education at the Fourth Universalist Society. And I'm so excited to be joined by a very special uh, guest speaker today. Lily, would you like to introduce yourself? 
Hi, yeah, I'm Lily Carianos. I am um, a sponsored post-seminarian now uh, with Fourth U. <laughs> and uh, I, I've uh, uh, provided reflections before uh, at Fourth U under um, Olas, which is now my middle name. I've legally changed my name to Lily and I use she, her pronouns. So happy to be here with you. Happy to have you. Um, I'm getting, you know, getting out all this excitement because uh, the reflection content itself is uh, perhaps a little bit more somber than, than the initial excitement here. Um, so, I'm, you know, I'll put on my serious face for this, the rest of this discussion. <laughs> so why, why this topic? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, going to a seminary like uh, Union Theological, which is where I went, and it is a Protestant seminary, but it is filled with, you know, atheists and Buddhists and UUs and, you know, so, so we have quite the mix there. And uh, it was kind of my first substantial um, interaction with, with folks who um, think deeply about Christian theology. And one of the things that really struck me um, as, as different in a lot of UU theology um, from Christian theology is um, kind of a lack of a articulated or at least centering sense of apocalyptic um, thinking. It's part of our larger culture. It's part of, you know, the culture that has been greatly informed by Christianity, but it is not really a, a strong theological strand of UUism. And at the same time that that's the case, we are living in an era where we're thinking about um, the end of certain times, the end of a certain way of being um, uh, generally at our culture at large and definitely um, specifically in religious settings and in UU settings. Oh, it's the end of the world as we know it and I feel fine. Um, <laughs> I, re I resisted the urge to um, ask, you know, mention that to our music team is like an important um, potential song. <laughs> I think they might have picked up on it, though. I think they were picking up on it. <laughs> Good. Um, I've not I've not looked at our music yet when we're recording this. Um, and um, no, as someone who grew up evangelical, where I was expecting the rapture to come at any minute, and that you know, would I be left behind because like only I knew that I was trans and like, was that going to be enough for me to like be left behind? And then I'd have seven years to like fight all of the apocalypses of the world. And, um, you know, they, they always hyped up a, you know, um, a, a demagogue who deceived Christians and had dubious ties to Russia and like, so strange how a lot of evangelicals decided to like really jump on the Trump train. Um, strange how that happens. Um, but so I grew up in this world um, and also grew up in like a very creationist world. I, I, I wrote um, letters to the editor about like why they, they should allow teaching creationism in public schools because such and such, such and such. Um, and I've, I've made some journeys in my life um, to say the least. Um, and I think one of the interesting things is, as I think about something like the climate crisis, um, I have had a few videos come up on my YouTube algorithm because YouTube, it just knows me sometimes. And it's really talked about like 
where humans came from, like the other, our other hominid ancestors, like how, you know, they had very similar behaviors, even if they weren't classified as like the Homo sapiens yet. Like the, you know, they lived in tribes, they did this thing, they did that, you know, Neanderthals were like bandaging, um, you know, people in their tribes. Like it, 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 there, there's something oddly inspiring about it in the face of, of global climate catastrophe that like, yes, this, this way of existing as humans may not be sustainable for the future. However, like hominids have found ways to like last through millennia. Um, and um, it, is, it has been kind of a, a new a new eschatology for those unfamiliar eschatology is the study of the end times uh, in theology. Um, but it, it's been kind of a new way of thinking about um, the endings of the world um, for me as I as I kind of you know process all this. Is there is there anything that you find that gives you hope in in the midst of all? You know, I, I think um, everything that you said. Yes, totally um, agree with um, uh, the. Um, definitely in the back of my mind throughout all of this was the the left behind uh series which you were referencing too and is very much um against our uu like theological bloodlines uh back to our universalist um forebears you know who primarily were like um this idea that a loving god would leave anybody behind uh uh is terribly problematic um and I think that when you start talking about the end of things, you inevitably start thinking about the beginnings of things. Um, it, it kind of becomes an arc. I, I, I talk in the reflection a bit about grief and grieving. And I, I do think that, you know, when you start getting to end of life, you start reflecting on the entire trajectory and the entire scope of life. Um, and, you know, I think that often and rightfully, we get really kind of caught up into how can we stop the appending, you know, doom and, and suffering. And, and I think that's very right and something that we should be talking about. But we should also be taking a second to, to take it all in, to see what is revealed to us um, at this at this end, at this end of time, at the, at this, at this juncture and, and see those fissures. Um, you know, in our society and in our lives and, and in our culture that, that get revealed by, by recognizing that the way that we have been living and the way that we have expected to live is not going to be possible. I think, oh gosh, I mean, there's so many, so many directions I could take this, you know, like the first thing that came to mind was thinking about like the, um, especially like pagan you use and like the more earth center you use and that that focus on um cycles that's found in that and i've always found that to be a beautiful thing as i've as i've built my own theology out of the wreckage of growing up evangelical you know this idea of like existence being cyclical and that that's just part of life like that that, that has been something that i've really um embraced um but i think um yeah you know i think that it is it is a challenging moment and that you know we um we're faced with this difficult thing and gosh see i get thinking about climate change and just suddenly my my mind is ten thousand different places but um you know i think 
that you know you're right that this this moment has revealed so much about things like I think about how um, when I traveled abroad and like obviously traveling abroad can be done from a very colonial standpoint um, it can just be for a vacation it can be you know but I, I went with the, the very specific intent of learning from the culture that I that I lived in and making friends and making connections there and you know being someplace like Vietnam where now that like we're back in the U.S. and I you know I open um, I open up the tag on my shoes and I see made in Vietnam I look at a shirt that we bought made in Vietnam and um, you when when you're living abroad especially in the you know quote-unquote developing countries like you you realize how the structures of the world have specifically left them behind and like you said the, this moment of of climate crisis is a chance for us to see um, the the harm that has been caused by by um, the way the world has been structured. Yeah, you know, at the beginning of the um, of the COVID pandemic, um, there were two theologians, um, uh, Catherine Keller and Jonathan Tominal, who published a piece uh, entitled uh, "Is This the End of the World?" We certainly hope it is, and you should too. Um, <laughs> and I mean, thumb, thumbs up for the best title. Oh. Right? <laughs> but it really was a, a piece about like um, when everything stopped and we had that moment to, to look back, there was this revelation. There was a revelation of um, the people that, as, as you were putting it, like people that we have left behind, like and and this, to see the people that were um, disproportionately affected by the uh, pandemic was revealed. And what was also revealed to us was that like this, the very thing that caused it to be a global pandemic, the 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 sort of um, ability for for disease to spread across the globe rapidly before anyone could stop it, is also the things that we can use to our advantage in the in in thinking about our futures in the climate apocalypse of like we had concerted global action happening um we we can do it again it it shows like in some way in a very visceral and real way something that we all lived and that across the world people were living we can we can change when i think about the i think about how quick after after you know like the, the uprisings around uh, George Floyd's murder happened and <laughs> how very quickly after that suddenly the establishment was like okay we're gonna start just taking this stuff seriously because uh they're a little too restless and we better get back to normal because this is obviously giving them too much time to notice that things aren't necessarily good um you know the, the, some of the things that came up from that like rent freezes like you know we don't have to evict people like well if you keep that up for too long, people might start to realize that maybe rent is theft. Um, right. Or student loan um, payment. Look, the economy has survived just fine for the you know three years that um, it's been 0% interest. Um, at the very least, we could do forever 0% interest. Imagine that. Um, <laughs> imagine. That we could just pay it off at the at a, whatever rate we could. Imagine, imagine. Um, but yeah, you know, I think well, I've I've heard the term the pandemicine, uh, which I kind of like a little bit more than post-pandemic, um, since you know we're still in the midst of uh, many issues. Um, and 
Um, I think, you know, I think that there, uh, there's some level of me that still pushes back against, you know, this return to normal because, and I think that climate change should cause us to think the same, like that we, we, we're not just fighting climate change so we can live the same exact way that we always have. Like it, the way that we have lived is the way that this happened. Um, we, we need to radically rethink what a sustainable existence looks like. And, and I think that I, I 100% agree. And I think that when you, when we think about climate change, any sort of, um, solution that is like, don't worry, we'll just technologize our, our way out of this. We don't have to fundamentally change the way that we live. We'll just, you know, shoot gas into the sky or, or something um, is a, a betrayal of the apocalypse that, and I keep using this term apocalypse. I should say that the Greek, it, in Greek, it means revelation or to reveal um, something. And so we, we should use this revelation to see those places where we, we are failing each other um, and, and change them. <laughs> we, don't, we don't just need, you know, yeah, these fantastic solutions. We can um, use this as a way to, to reflect on the things that are fundamentally broken. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. Well, I appreciate this, uh, this, what, what felt to me like a beautiful message. Um, you know, I can understand that it might be somber for others, but for me, uh, as I was reading through it, as I was preparing to talk with you, I was, I was very moved by it. Um, and thanks for coming and delivering it. As, thank you. Thank, thanks for sitting down with me to, to talk. Thank you for having me. And thanks as always to all of our listeners. Mm -hmm.